station in the army was in West Berlin as part of the Berlin Brigade. And West Berlin uh, is actually in East Germany, and it's surrounded by communism. You can see there. And West Berlin was called an island of freedom in a sea of communism. And the Berlin Brigade's job, their main job, was to make sure that it stayed free. That was their, the only thing that they did. Uh, to make sure that the, the Russians and the communists never came in and took over. And in, part of what they did in defending the freedom of the people of West Berlin was they did a lot of things to be a show of force. And we had parades. They threw a, a lot of parades. And the parades in... And the Berlin Brigade, they were big ordeals. In fact, they threw so many parades that it was kind of nicknamed the Parade Brigade. And in the parades, every soldier that was a part of the brigade basically had to be a part. You got your, your battle uniforms and you starched them. You spit-shined your boots. You got your weapon. You attached your bayonet. And then you marched out perfectly. You stood rock still while various people, commanders of the Berlin Brigade, dignitaries, from Berlin, stood up and they spoke to, all, to the assembled crowds. It was a big deal. Lots of people came from the city. And, and they were long, long events. Uh, because everything that was spoken in English had to be translated into German. Everything that was spoken in German had to be translated into English. And the commanders that spoke from the Berlin Brigade, they spoke powerfully and convincingly about the Berlin Brigade would stand and they would defend freedom and Berlin would never fall. The People who were dignitaries from Berlin would speak and they would explain that they, they appreciated the soldiers maintaining their freedom, giving their time and their lives to be there. By the time I arrived in the Berlin Brigade, the wall had fallen down and the Cold War was coming to an end. And while the Berlin Brigade was not so much the defenders of freedom that they had always been, they still threw an awful lot of parades. And I got to be a part of several of them. And I remember my very first parade. I, I was not briefed. On the watts and the whys of a Berlin Brigade parade. And so I got ready. We went out there and we stood for what seemed to be hours. Uh, I mean, it just felt like it was two or three days long. I know it wasn't, but it went on and it went on and went on. And it was confusing to me. I didn't understand all of the things that were being translated and all the stuff that was going on. And I felt, to me, it was boring. I mean, if you watch a parade, it's kind of interesting. But when you're the guy in it, really all soldiers do is they march out, they stand still, and then they march out again. That's all that you're allowed to do. You can't talk, sit down, or do anything else. And then I felt it was a waste of my time. I mean, I enlisted in the army to be an infantry soldier. I wanted to soldier. I didn't want to stand around in a parade. And, and so I, I didn't know all that had gone on. And so it was just, to me, a terrible, terrible experience. And I tell you this because I honestly think that a lot of people feel about church the way I felt about my first Berlin Brigade parade. Right? They, they don't understand why. Why get up on the weekend early? And come to church and sit with a bunch of people and sing some songs and listen to somebody speak. It can be confusing because if you weren't raised in church, then a lot of the language that we use really doesn't make a lot of sense. You must be born again, re repent of your sins, trust in Jesus. Well, those of us that have always been a part of church, we know what those things mean. A lot of people don't. Some see it as a waste of time. I mean, there's better things they could be doing on a Sunday morning. Besides sitting in here, singing songs and, and listening to someone teach. And added to the confusion is that the teaching 
it often requires us or is expected of us that we're going to make changes because of what's been taught. We're called upon to to make a a change in our lives based on what has been taught in the service that day. And and what has been taught in the service that we're supposed to change our lives over is a book that was completed 2,000 years ago. I mean, how on earth could a book that old be relevant to our lives today? So what I want to do today is I want to take the time and just explain the main message of Christianity. But in the main message of Christianity, it is a person named Jesus Christ. And what I want to do is explain why Jesus is so very important. And and why who he is and what he has done, it changes our lives and it demands a response. And in order to really understand all of this, to answer the question of why Jesus is so important, we have to begin at the beginning. So turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. And while you're turning there, I'm going to pray for us in our time together. Our Father, we love you today. We thank you, God, for this time that we have to gather, to study your word, to sing your praise. We thank you for Jesus and who he is and what he's done. God, we come today with burdens and cares and distractions all around us. And we ask you to help us to lay these things aside. Help Father, that that your spirit would come and he would help our hearts and our minds to be focused upon you. Let our hearts be the good ground where your word could sink in and bring forth fruit into our lives. We ask you, God, to to open our minds that we can see who Jesus is and why he's important. And we would embrace him as our Savior and as our Lord. Fill me today with your Holy Spirit and give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech that I could speak your words and your ways. God, I do not want to be a hindrance in any way. And then, God, as we begin to look at who Jesus is and what he's done, begin to deal in each one of our hearts. Search us and try us and see if there's anything in our lives that is not as you would have it to be. And if there is, God, convict us of it. Make it very clear that you are showing us what needs to be changed. Lord, whether it's a change we need to to go from unbelief to belief, whether it's a sin we need to lay aside, whether it's a, a step in spiritual growth that we need to make, help us to have the courage to make it. Let the way that we respond today make a difference in our lives tomorrow. Be glorified in all things, I ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Genesis 1. One says, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. The earth was without form and void. Darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering the face of the waters. Now, I love how the Bible starts. It kind of gives us a picture that there was nothing. And then God decided there needed to be something. And so God spoke and there was. The way that God created the world is that he spoke over and over again in Genesis chapter 1. We're told, like in verse 3, God said, let there be light, and there was light. Genesis 1 and 6, God said, let there be a ferment in the midst of the waters. At the end of verse 7, and it was so. And just over and over again, God spoke, and things happened. God said, let there be, and something came into be. Another thing that is repeated throughout the book of or first chapter of Genesis is, and God saw that it was good. Right in, in, chapter, in verse 10, God saw what he had created. He saw that it was good. In verse 12, and God saw that it was good. And this goes on and on throughout the chapter. And then at the very end, it's kind of the conclusion of it. Then God saw everything that he had made. And indeed, it was very good. 
Now, God created the world, and when God created it, everything was, was very good. As we look at the world around us, we can see that the world around us is not very good. We live in a world where, where bad things happen. We live in a world where there is sickness and death and, and agony and pain. So what, what happened to take God's very good world and make it in the world in which we see, in which all kinds of bad things happened? Well, there was something that came up that man did that corrupted God's good creation. Man sinned against God. So jump to Genesis chapter 3. God created man and he placed him in the garden. And all of man's needs were met except his need for companionship. So God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam and he took a rib and he created woman from it. Man and woman lived in the garden and they had near perfect communion with God. They had uh, a mission from God to tend the garden and to keep it. And they had one rule in all of the world. That is not to eat of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we don't know how long this went on, but for a period of time they lived in perfect communion, fulfilling their purpose for the Lord. And then in chapter 3 it says, Now the serpent was more cunning than than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may may, may eat of the trees of the garden, but of the tree which is in the midst of the garden... God has said, you shall not eat it, you sh- or, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. The serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. Right, so everything goes along fine, and then Satan comes along, and first he, he questions God. He casts doubt on God's word. Did, did God really say this? Well, she says, yes, God did say that. Well, then... He begins to contradict God's word. No, you won't actually die. What God has said, that's not the way it is. And and when she doesn't respond yet by giving into it, he begins to to try to convince her that God is keeping her from something good. Right? God is, it's not that you're going to die. If you eat this, you're going to be like God, knowing good and evil, and God wants to hold you back. God doesn't want you to experience life. He doesn't want you to have the fullness of joy. That's what this is all about. Well, verse 6, she believes it. The woman saw that the tree was good for food, it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise. She took of its fruit and she ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. The eyes of them both were open, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves coverings. And in that moment, they, they died. But they didn't die physically. Instead, they died spiritually. Now, the Bible tells us that man is created in the image of God. And there's a lot that that means. But what it means for us today is that just as God is three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, man is three in one. There's the body, the soul, and the spirit. Now, the body is what it sounds like. It is our physical body. Our, our soul is the, the will, the intellect, and the emotions of a person. And then there's the spirit. And the spirit of man is the part of us that can know God, that can communicate with God, and that loves God. And it was that part of Adam and Eve that died on the moment that they they took part in that sin and they separated themselves from God. And from that moment on, every person ever born was born spiritually dead, separated from God, and resistant to the rule of God. Right? This is why this is why people don't like little kids. You say, Don't touch that. They have to touch it, 
Right? That is that, that part of them that is rebellious that came about in this. And, and at this point, God could have left man in that condition. He could have left man spiritually dead. He could have left man separated from him. But God is so much better than that. It says in verse 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Now, this isn't really a part of what I had in my notes. I just want to point this out. They weren't looking for God at this point. They were hiding from God. Right? They were actively trying to, to be away from God and not to go near Him and to be with Him. And notice what God did. And the Lord called to Adam and He said, Where are you? Right? God went looking for them. I mean, how good is that? How great is God? That He, he doesn't leave us in our sin and our rebellion. He, he doesn't leave us even when we hide from Him and we want to be away from God. God actively comes and He seeks each one of us out. And He tries to draw us back to Himself to restore the relationship with Him we were supposed to have. And Adam and Eve begin to, to talk about what happens. He said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And then God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded that you should not eat? Now, I love how Adam and Eve respond at this point. Right? Neither one just says, yes, we did. Both begin to pass the buck. Adam said, the woman whom you gave me, she gave me to eat. And I ate. Right? First it was, Adam says, first it was the woman, which by the way, God, you gave me. It was her fault. So God told to the woman. And he said, what is this you have done? And the woman says, the serpent deceived me. And I ate. And so God calls the serpent on the carpet. And here's what he says to him. Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the cattle, more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. Now verse 15 is the key verse for this part. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. At this point, God already has a plan to fix the problem of what happened with Adam and Eve's sin. This is the first mention of a Savior that's going to come into the world. A Savior is going to come. And, and really where it says that, he shall bruise your head. Really the idea of bruise there is, I think it's a different word from bruise the next one. And it means to crush. So Satan, he would, he would bruise the Savior that came into the world. But in the process of all that was going on, the Savior would crush the serpent's head. He would break the power that he had over mankind and he would free them. He would be the Savior that would restore what had been broken. Now, the rest of the Old Testament tells us the story of the people God chose to bring the Savior through. But as it goes on, telling us about these people, it also tells us something about the Savior that would come. It tells us that He would be born of a virgin. There we go. He would be born of a virgin. He would be born in Bethlehem. He would have a ministry of miracles. He would draw all people to God. He would establish a new covenant between God and man. He would suffer. He would bleed and he would die. 
But he wouldn't stay dead. He would rise from the dead. And he would ascend to heaven. And the folks in the Old Testament really didn't understand all that all these things meant. They just knew that it was going to happen because God said that it would. But when the fullness of time came and God knew that the time was right for the Savior to come into the world, he sent his son, born of a virgin, born in Bethlehem. Turn to to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew 1 and 18, and it says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his, mo- after his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make a public example, was mindful to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph... Son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bring forth a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all of this was done, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken to the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated, God with us. Now Matthew was written by a former tax collector that converted to Christianity that believed in Jesus and followed Jesus. Matthew wrote specifically to Jewish people to prove to them that he was the Messiah, the Savior that God had talked about from Genesis chapter 3. Frequently, Matthew makes the statement that he does in verse 22 throughout his book. All of this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord. He's continually showing, here's what the Old Testament said the Savior would be like, here's what Jesus did. He is the Savior that God promised would come. Now in this passage, it tells us two, I would say, two foundational truths about who Jesus is. The first is that Jesus is God. And it says in verse 20, that but while Joseph thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And then, in verse 23, the virgin shall be with child, bear a son, they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. See, the birth of Jesus was coming about in a, in a special way. It wasn't a, a normal situation. It was the Holy Spirit that came upon Mary and formed the baby within her. He would be immaculately conception. He would immaculate conception. He would come about because of a work of God in her life, ensuring that Jesus was not just a man that was born with a sinful nature. He would, in fact, be God in the flesh, and he was going to be God that would be with us. The second thing that's important to understand about Jesus from this is that He is the Savior that God promised would come. Verse 21 says, She will bring forth a son, she'll call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. Now, I thought about that this week, about Jesus saving us from our sin. I think there's questions that we need to answer about that. One of the questions is, what is sin? I mean, what is sin? If Jesus came to save us from sin, what is sin? Well, we saw in Genesis 3 that when man sinned, that 
they were born, that they then died, died spiritually and they were rebellious against God. And every person born after that was born separated from God. We are, as people, we are sinners by birth. But not only are we sinners by birth, we are sinners by choice. Each one of us in this room this morning, we have done things that God has said not to do. Right? Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned, come short of the glory of God. Now people say, well, I don't necessarily feel that I've, I'm a sinner. That's, a, that's an awful word. I don't feel that I have sinned like that. Well, in order to really understand that, we've got to understand what sin is. And the Bible explains that to us. Everyone who commits sin also breaks the law. Sin is the breaking of the law. Very simply, sin is a violation of God's righteous standard. God has an absolute standard of right and wrong. It's absolutely right for all people of all times. And anyone who has ever done what God has said not to do or not done what God has said to do, they have broken His law. Now the main way to understand God's law is to see it as the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments from Exodus 20 make up God's absolute standard of right and wrong. Everything God commanded the people to do in the Old Testament flowed out of the Ten Commandments. Everything that we, if we were to look at the, the New Testament, all the things that believers are told to do and not to do, they still all flow out of the Ten Commandments. Right? And what the Bible teaches is, the better we know the commandments, the more we realize that we have violated these commandments. Right? Let me give you an example. One of the, the, the greatest violation of the Ten Commandments probably comes within the first four, which deals with our relationship with God. And the very first commandment says, you shall have no other gods before me. And it's easy to look at that and say, well, I've kept that. I mean, I've never worshipped Baal. I've never worshipped Allah. I've never been a Buddhist. So I've always worshipped God. I've done that. The thing is, to have no other gods before God, it means more than not to have worshipped a false god. To have no other gods before God, it means that, that God must have been first in my life. Always. Right? Because the law, the law is pretty harsh. The law passes or grades on a pass or fail scale. Right? There is no 90% and you're good to go. When it comes to, to righteousness that comes from a keeping the law, you either pass with 100% or you fail and you're guilty. So how does that work towards no other gods before the Lord? Well, that means God must have been my number one priority all of my life. Right? Not just in words, not just me saying God is number one, but in my actions. Every action I have ever done must demonstrate that God is first in my life. My attitudes. I can never have had an, an unchristlike attitude. I can never reacted to somebody in an ungodly way. My priorities must always have been, here's what God wants me to do, and this is what I'm going to do. Always. From the time we're born to the time we die, it must always be that to have passed that. Well, here's the question. Have you ever known what God wanted you to do, but for one reason or another, you did something else? You put your will above God's will. You put your desire above what God has said is right and wrong. Well, if you have, you have sinned. 
You have broken God's commandment. And now you are guilty before the Lord. So what does that leave us with? Honestly, it forces all of us to admit, I have sinned. I am not righteous on my own. I've broken God's law. I am a sinner. And I need to be saved from my sin. So why do we... The second question, why do I need to be saved from my sin? Because sin has a consequence. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. But the death that comes from sin is not merely physical death. It is eternal death. It is the, the judgment described when the Bible talks about hell. That is what our sins earn. They earn that. right? It's not God giving it to us. It's what we have earned through our sin. The terrible wrath of God will one day be poured out upon all sin. So there we are. Guilty. Before the Lord. Justly condemned for our sin. Facing the wrath of God. But a Savior came. And He came to save us from that. So how did He do that? Turn with me to Matthew 26. And look at verse 67. As Jesus lived on the earth... He picked 12 guys that he would invest his life in. He would train to take the mission of making disciples of all nations go out into the world. One of the 12 determined to betray Jesus. And so he went to the chief priest and he agreed to a certain price to betray them into Jesus' hand. Jesus was arrested at night. He was taken to what we might call a kangaroo court. And he was condemned unjustly to die. And as a part of his dying, he was going to be beaten. He was going to be abused. He was going to die an awful, painful, humiliating death. Look at verse 67. It says, and then they spat in his face and they beat him. And others struck him with the palms of their hands saying, prophesy to us, Christ, who is the one who struck you? The people that were doing this, these were the people that should have been most devoted to God. These were the people that should have recognized Jesus as the Christ and went before the rest of the people saying, God has sent the Savior and this is Him. Instead, Jesus upset their apple cart. He wasn't what they expected and He wasn't what they wanted. And so they rejected Him and here they began to abuse Him. And while this is bad and humiliating, it gets worse. Turn to chapter 27 and verse 26. Jesus is taken before a, a Roman who's the governor over Judea named Pilate. And they're trying to convince Pilate to execute Jesus, to crucify him. Pilate knows that the Jews have delivered Jesus up because they are jealous. And so he tries to do all that he can to get Jesus away. And one of the things that Pilate did every year in order to, to make the goodwill of the people was he would put up a couple of different guys that were convicted to die. And he would say, I'll free one. You people decide, who shall I free? And the one that they chose, he would let free and he would be escaped and not suffer the punishment for his crimes. 
So Pilate puts up Jesus, who he knew was innocent, who the people knew was innocent. And he also put up a man named Barabbas that Pilate knew was guilty and the people knew that was guilty. And I'm thinking in Pilate's mind, he's thinking, surely to goodness, they're going to see the contrast here. And they're going to say, release Jesus and crucify Barabbas. The people are far more wicked than Pilate gave them credit for. And they chose for Pilate to release Barabbas. And so he does. And that's in verse 26. And it says, and then he released Barabbas to them. And it says, and when he, he scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Now, it says he scourged him. And that doesn't give much there detail. Because everybody in this day, they knew exactly what that was. But it's good for us because it's one thing to say Jesus died for our sin. He died to be our Savior. But to really understand what he endured on our place, he endured for us because of our sin. To be scourged was a pretty bad thing. It was done to humiliate the people and to weaken them so that they would die quicker once they had been crucified. And what would happen was the person would be taken to a place that was public and they would bend them over something like this and they would chain their hands in front of them and they would strip them naked. And then Roman centurions would stand on either side of them. And they had a a whip that they called a horrible whip. And it was kind of like a cat of nine tails. And at the end of each whip was either a piece of bone or a piece of glass or a piece of metal. And they would take turns. The one on this side would hit the guy. and, And the target was the entire back from head to feet. And they would hit them. And then they would jerk it back. So the jagged bone or the jagged rock would dig in and they would pull back flesh and bone and everything else. And then they took turns. This guy would hit and then that guy would hit. And then this guy would hit and then that guy would hit. And they would do it 39 or 40 times to the person. The people were so beaten by this that many died from shock of what was endured through the scourging. Others that didn't, they were called half dead because even if they had not crucified them, they could not be saved at that point. They were going to die from damages done. So when it says Jesus was scourged, that's what it means. And it says, then the soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and they gathered the whole garrison around him. And they stripped him and they put a scarlet robe on him, right? Because he was supposed to be the king of the Jews. And they twisted a crown of thorns. And they put it on his head and they read in his right hand. They bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And the crown of thorns were long thorns. They would have scraped his skull as they were forced down upon his head, ripping the flesh around him. And as they mocked him, they grew tired of that and they began to do more. Verse 38, I'm sorry, verse 30, it says, They spat on him. They took the reed. And they struck him on the head. Now, the picture is that not that they did it once, but they did it repeatedly. They repeatedly beat him about the head and shoulders with the reed. And and they did it, I mean, to me, my understanding is they did it until they just kind of got bored with it. It was said all of them took turns. All of them did this to Jesus. And when they grew tired of that, They took the robe off of him, put his own clothes back on him, and led him away to be crucified. And maybe a minor thing, but something that always sticks out to me is, his back had already been pretty well beat up when they put the scarlet robe upon him. What happens when you put clothing over a wound? 
Right? It, it sticks to it. And so his entire back was one big wound and it stuck to it. And then when it was time to be through, they just ripped it off, reopening the wound, adding more agony to what was already going on. And it says, and they led him away to be crucified. What had happened to Jesus was so severe that he could not carry the cross himself. Verse 32, it says, they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, and they compelled him to carry his cross. When they came to the place called Golgotha, that is the place of the skull, they gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink. And when he had tasted it, he would not drink. Now, that drink was meant to numb the pain. The Romans were uh, sadistic people. They wanted people to suffer, but they didn't want them to suffer and die too quickly. The, The numbing of the pain would allow them to fight the agony of the crucifixion longer and allow them to enjoy it themselves a little bit. But Jesus, he refused it. It says, and they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. Divided my garments among them for my clothing. They cast lots and they crucified him. They laid him on a cross and they nailed his hands and his feet and they lifted him up and they dropped the cross into a hole. And the cross would have fallen two or three feet before it suddenly jerked to a stop. In many cases, this dislocated the shoulders and even the elbows of the people who were crucified, adding to their pain. Now, the way you die in a crucifixion is not from blood loss. You die from asphyxiation. Your arms are stretched over your head. You can't get any oxygen. And the only way to breathe is to push up with your feet. And so you push up with your feet and you pull down with your hands to get some air. And then when you get all you can, you can't hold it, you sink back down. And this process goes on over a period of hours. And this is the fight that Jesus had. Every time he said a word, it's because he pulled himself up to get an air and he could say something and then he would go back down. As this went on, the robbers who were crucified with him mocked him. The people who were around him mocked him. And they, they basically just said, he saved others. Why can't he save himself? If he comes down off the cross, we'll believe he's the Christ. Save yourself, O Christ. And they mock this man dying in an agonizing death. And it says in verse 45, Now about the sixth hour of the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What happened there was that Jesus, for the first time, he had to experience separation from God. He had to experience all that we experience because of sin. So for the first time in ever and the only time, Jesus was separated from the Father. Now, I didn't really think about that much until I had kids of my own. Uh, but uh, just think about this. As parents, we love our kids and we, would, we don't always approve everything they do, but we would be there with them to the very end if we had to. But for our sins, God the Father could not be with Jesus to the very end. He had to separate from him so that Jesus could die absolutely and utterly alone. And then in verse 50, it says, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and he yielded up his spirit. John 19 and 31 tells us that he cried out, it is finished. What was finished? He had taken all of the wrath against all sin. 
He had broken down the separation between God and man. Verse 51, it says, Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to the bottom. The earth quaked and the rocks were split. All that God promised would happen way back in Genesis chapter 3, Jesus brought to completion at that point. Through his death, the wrath of God had been satisfied against all sin. Through his death, the penalty had been paid. Forgiveness could be given. And now man could have a close relationship with God. You say, well, that's a big, big promise. How can we be sure that that's really what happened? Because the Romans, they crucified lots of people. They crucified lots of Jews. There were even two others on the day that Jesus died. How can we be sure that his death was for the sins of the world and not just because he made the wrong people angry? We'll turn to chapter 28 and verse 1. It says, Now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. Behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. His countenance was like lightning, his clothing as white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen. As he had said, Come and see the place where the Lord lay, and go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and indeed is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring the disciples word. See, we can be sure that Jesus' death was not the death of a martyr because he rose again. We can be sure that Jesus' death was not because he made the wrong people angry because he rose again. The the resurrection of Christ, it is the, the key thing. His crucifixion would really have no meaning if it were not for his resurrection. He rose from the dead. And now because of his death, and his resurrection, he ascended to heaven and he calls to us to come to him and to be saved and to receive his forgiveness. And he wants to be the savior of all. But to be the savior, we have to to believe in him. We have to call out to him and have him save us. And the salvation that Jesus offers us, the Bible speaks of it not just in a one time event. The Bible speaks of it in, in three stages, past, present and future. In the past, we were saved from the penalty of sins. This is the moment when we call out to Jesus and ask him to save us. And in that moment, what he did on the cross is applied to our our guilty account. His righteousness is applied to us. And from that moment on, we are free from the condemnation of sin. From that moment on, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Our sins are forgiven and we are restored to a relationship with God. In the present We are being saved from the power of sin. Just because we've been saved from the penalty of sin doesn't mean sin no longer has a pull or an appeal to us. But what God does is he doesn't leave us alone in this. He works in our lives and he helps us to grow more and more so that we can be more like Jesus. And as this growth happens, it begins to free the power of sin that it has over our lives so that we can live for Christ and we can accomplish his will in the world. This process begins the moment we're saved and it continues on. To the day that he calls us home to glory. And then in the future, we will be saved from the very presence of sin. And this is a a definite moment in the future where we will go to be where Jesus is. And in that salvation, our sinful nature will be completely destroyed. And we'll be totally delivered from the power and the presence of sin. And we'll live in a place where there is no, no sin. 
And all of the effects of sin are gone. And in the little bit of time we have left, I want to show us that. Turn to Revelation 21. Bible says, now I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. He will dwell with them and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. God will wipe away every tear. From their eyes there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. There's two, two things I want to point out about this future day. The first is that we will be with Jesus. Now, that's the point of verse 3. The tabernacle of God is with men. He will dwell with them, and he will be their God, and they will be his people. In this life, we can know Jesus through faith, and there's a measure of an experience of his presence that we have. But what we experience now is nothing compared to what we will experience then. What makes heaven heaven is Jesus. Right? It's not the streets of gold or the walls of jasper or anything else. If the streets were made of mud, if the houses were made of wooden huts, if there was reeds up over our head, but Jesus was there, it would be heaven. What makes heaven great is we will be with the one who died for us. The second thing to understand about this day is that everything that is bad will have passed away. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There should be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. No more pain, for the former things have passed away. The sin and the evil and the suffering of this life were not a part of God's original plan. Our rebellion made the world bad. It is our rebellion that took the world from being very good to being what we see now. But there will come a day where God will take us to a place that is free from the contamination of sin. It is free from the effects of sin. There will be no more sorrow, no more death, no more crying, no more evil. It will be a perfect place because God is there to dwell with his people. All of this is a part of the salvation that Jesus died to provide for us. This is why Jesus is so important. Jesus is so important because he is the only Savior there is. Jesus alone can save us from the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and the presence of sin. But, and a message, a message that good, well, it demands a response on our part. But Jesus calls to us to come to him and to receive what he offers and we must respond there's three ways we need to respond we need to trust in jesus jesus said for god so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life for god did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but the world through him might be saved jesus endured the wrath on the cross he took the wages our sins deserved so that we could all be saved from the penalty of sin. But here's the thing. We're not all saved from the penalty of sin. Only those who make the conscious decision to trust in Christ are saved by Him. So that is a decision each one of us must make on our own. We must choose to turn from our way of living to His way of living. 
We must choose to turn from our sin to Jesus. And we must choose to call out to him and say, Jesus, save me. Those who call out to Jesus, they will be saved. That's a promise from Scripture. But that is the way we are saved. We must call out to Jesus. We must choose to trust in him. Secondly, live for Jesus. Love of Christ compels us because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died and he died for all. That those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. If what we've talked about, about Jesus this morning, who he is and what he's done, if that is not true, then Jesus is of no importance at all. If it is true, then Jesus is of ultimate importance. The only thing Jesus cannot be is of moderate importance to our lives. If he's not real, none, no importance at all. If he is real, he is the most important person ever. And if I have trusted in Jesus for my salvation, I am saying Jesus is of ultimate importance. And my life should show it. I should live in very definite ways that demonstrate Christ is ultimate to me. If we believe in Jesus, we must live for Jesus. And then finally, introduce others to Jesus. One of the two who heard John speak followed him. And followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. If Jesus is the one and only Savior of the world that has saved me from my sin and is of ultimate importance to me, then it makes good sense that I would do everything I could to introduce others to this person who is so important, who could save them from their sin and guide them in their lives. If we believe that Jesus is who the Bible says he is, we trust in him for our salvation. We live for him in our lives. and We do all that we can to introduce others to him so that they can experience this as well. How do you need to respond to Jesus today? Let's stand as our musicians.